on December the 19th, 19th, 1973, one sentence was uttered that sent our nation into a crisis. And the person who said that sentence was this guy, Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was the original host of The Tonight Show long before Jay Leno had headlines and Jimmy Fallon had his sing-alongs. Johnny Carson ruled late-night TV. And one night, as he was beginning his opening monologue, he said the following words. There is an acute shortage of toilet paper in the United States. You say, why would he talk about that? Well, earlier that day, a congressman from Wisconsin had been speaking to the Congress. And he was describing the problems and the dysfunctions of our federal bureaucracy and supply chain as it served our, our government agencies. And he said, if we don't get this figured out, our government agencies will be facing a shortage of toilet paper in the next one to two months. Well, Carson grabbed that soundbite and he turned it into a joke. He told people watching his show that night that we're going to run our toilet paper in the country. Big difference between federal government agencies and country, but he told the joke. And if you've ever watched Carson, he told the joke, he would swing his golf club, he'd walk off, interview somebody, somebody would sing, the show would go on. The only problem is that the American people watching that night in December 1973 didn't get the joke. So the next morning at stores across the country, lines began to form. One Florida newspaper reported that uh, grocery stores in their community were rationing toilet paper. Four rolls per person. The only problem is they didn't set a limit on how many visits you could have. So they would go, get four rolls, check out, go outside, put it in their car, come back, four, eight, twelve, sixteen. You get the idea. In some places in the country, by noon on December 20th, 1973, less than 18 hours after Carson's show, the shelves were bare, and there was no teepee. Now, for those of you who are hoarders and who currently have 250 rolls in your house, you're fine. But for single guys who wait till the cardboard shows up on their last roll to buy new ones, they were in deep, deep trouble. Now, you say, Scott, other than the fact that it's a funny story, why begin there? Well, I think this story reveals something about the human condition. I think we are hardwired to believe a story like Johnny Carson told. I think there's an inborn gullibility within us because I believe that many of us have a fear. And that fear is that we're not going to have enough. It affects us not only with toilet paper, but money. Even some of us who have much more than we used to have. We're afraid of not having enough. We're afraid of not having enough time. We're afraid of not having enough money. We're afraid of, of not having enough opportunities. We live with what we call a scarcity mindset. And this not having enough fear is at the root of our addiction to busyness. It's at the root. It's a driver for so much of the busy life that we live. For some of us, busyness is the adjective we go to when somebody asks us, how are you doing? I'm busy. And for some of us, it, it's, a, it's a sign of our pride and our success. If somebody asks us, how are you doing? And we say, it's kind of slow. I don't have much going on. It means that we don't have worth and we don't have value. Somebody told me recently, they said, it's almost as if saying you're busy is a boast disguised as a complaint. 
Sometimes we say we're busy because we're complaining. Sometimes we say it because we're proud that we have so much going on. And busyness isn't just a problem at the holidays. It's a problem all year long. If if business is an issue for you, then then maybe the issue is noise. Maybe the the fact that you feel like not having enough is, is tuned out by all the noise in your life. The TV is always going. There's always music. The phone is always chirping. There's always something going on. And recently, I stumbled on a clip from comedian Louis C.K., who's not a person I would typically show in church, if you know his comedy. And I'm not recommending you go search him on YouTube, because you'll find stuff like, Sky listens to this guy? But this 90-second clip is so right on, I think, where so many of us live. Watch the screen. Yeah, exactly. You need... The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they've got to, uh, you got to check. Because, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> That's, yes. Yes. Yes, I... Yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it. You're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes that I'm alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving and then you go, "Uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. Tim Kreider, when remarking on this problem, said, our frantic days are really just a hedge against emptiness. This is, this is, I know, real deep, real quick. But I think this is where so many of us actually live. That we're busy, and our lives are loud, because we're trying to avoid something. Louis C.K. calls it our forever empty. Blaise Pascal, 400 years ago in France, called it the God-shaped hole inside of us. You too, in their best song ever, described it when they said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. 1,500 years ago, Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, part of the challenge of this whole present over perfect thing is that we try to achieve a perfect life We try to achieve through busyness and noise a numbing that prevents us from facing that thing we don't want to deal with inside of us. And perfect tells us if you could just achieve, if you could just get there, if you could just uh, achieve that level of perfection, that would go away. And that's why perfect is so tempting and so dangerous. If, If you were to ask me to describe the reason why perfect is so bad, I would use these words. I'm talking about comparison. We live in an age where it is easier and more dangerous to compare our lives to other people than ever before. You know, jealousy and envy are in the Ten Commandments, and I think that there's never been more envy and jealousy than there is right now. 
because we have more access to see things and be jealous of them than ever before. Striving. For many of us, this year, 2019, you know, this year is the year that I'm going to get blank. Because when I get blank, it's going to be okay. Insecurity. If you go on Amazon today or you actually find an actual bookstore that's still open, what you will find is an overabundance of new books that are being written about identity, both in the church and in the culture at large. Why is who we are such a big question? Because we are living in the middle of an epidemic of insecurity. And then finally, fear. As a recovering perfectionist, I can tell you this. Perfectionism is actually just fear. If you say you're a perfectionist, your issue is fear. My issue is fear. Because perfect is a shield to keep me from having to deal with that fear. Or being vulnerable to that fear. And so in this month of January, as we start a new year, we're not talking about goals or resolutions, dreams or plans. We're going to a different place in this series that we've titled Present Over Perfect. We're going to look at what does it mean for us to live in a way and a rhythm that actually leads us to the life that God wants to give us. To the life that we want to experience. And how can we choose to reject the temptation of perfect and to show up and be present? You say, Scott, what does present involve? Well, being present would be living an unhurried life. Being present would mean actually paying attention. Being present is not just physically being in a place, but being there emotionally, spiritually, and mentally too. Being present would mean Embracing whatever is as the gift and the place that God has for us, broken and imperfect as it is. And so as we start this journey during the month of January, I want to begin with this idea. If you have a copy of your notes, I'd encourage you to pull it out. If you're watching online, there's a link below the screen. And our big idea for today is this, that the life we want cannot be achieved. It can only be received. The life God wants to give us now and in this year cannot be achieved. It can only be received. This series, we're going to spend a lot of time in a few short verses in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is going to be our text today. Matthew is the first of four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Matthew 11, Jesus is speaking to a crowd that he's been chastising because they're closed off to his message. And then he speaks to those who are actually open and he says these profound words. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like That's the best verse ever for the week after Christmas and New Year's. I will give you rest. Somebody in the first service was sitting here and they're like, amen. You know, he continues, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, Jesus says, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm also going to share with you what this translates in in the message by Eugene Peterson. I think it expands the text a little bit. Peterson translates it this way. He says, are you tired? Are you worn worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me then. This is Jesus speaking. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Jesus says, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the invitation that I want to put before us as we begin this new year. And I want to talk today about the ways that we tend to mess that up and get away from that life that Jesus wants us to live. And I've got three ways that I want to share that I think we tend to get this mixed up. And the first way is this, that we live a hurried pace, preventing us from paying attention. We live a hurried pace, which prevents us from paying attention. In that opening verse there, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. From the very beginning, he's acknowledging that there are things in our life that cause us angst and worry. He's speaking to a crowd that is living in a day where there was over 600 religious laws. That's hard enough to even know, much less follow. And those laws were oppressive and they, they were a burden and a labor on people. He's also speaking to them because they're recognizing, just as you and I do, that we are imperfect and our world is imperfect. And they were striving to try to overcome that. And they were exhausted. They were beaten down. They were burned out. And he says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, if you're like me, you've heard people rant and rave before about the problem of busyness. And I think sometimes busyness gets a bad rap for what's actually a bigger and different problem. Because I think there's a difference between being busy and being hurried. There's a big difference. We just came out of a busy season. And some seasons are just busy. There's no way around it. As a pastor, I don't know how to do Christmas and not be busy. It's just Christmas. Maybe if you're a parent and you've got a couple teenagers for whom you are their butler, their valet, their cook, their housekeeper, it's just a busy season. Maybe you're taking care of somebody who is ill and and you're taking a doctor's appointments and you're fighting with insurance. You're in a busy season. But being busy is very different than being hurried. Because busy is external and hurried is internal. You can live hurried even when you have nothing on your calendar. You can live hurried in January even when your calendar from December slows down. Hurried is a state of our souls. A few years ago, I went to work for Starbucks. I think 2010 is when I started. And eight years later, that place is still ruining my life. It's not Starbucks' fault. It's my fault. But I picked up a bad habit along the way. I would work a shift that didn't actually earn a lunch. And so I'd only have a 10-minute break on my evening shift. I'd have 10 minutes to eat, go to the bathroom, check my phone, fix a problem. And so in that period, I began to eat fast. I didn't chew. I just inhaled my food. And eight years later, I still eat like that. This week, my wife was looking at me. She goes, honey, breathe. Chew. You have nowhere to go. You don't need to be in a rush. Even though I'm not busy anymore, I still eat at a hurried pace. Years ago, Pastor John Ortberg moved to Chicago to lead a new church, and he was overwhelmed by the pace of the church and the pace of the city, so he did what a lot of us do, and he called his mentor, Dallas Willard, who's somebody who's mentored me from afar, never met Dallas, but his writings had a huge impact on me. He said, Dallas, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, this place is crazy, this pace is out of control, what do I do? 
And Dallas said to him these words. He said, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So John pulls his notebook out and he writes down, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Okay, what else? And Dallas goes, no, that's it. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life because hurry is the greatest enemy to the spiritual life today. There are many of you this year that as this year begins, you long to have a different kind of relationship with God this year. You're, you're praying and longing to hear from God in a new and a fresh way. You will never experience that longing coming true if you live hurried. Because it's hard to hear from God when you hurry. And that's what we talked about for the last four weeks at Christmas in our series on wonder. We talked about the fact that wonder is all around us if we have eyes to see it. But many times we're so busy, we're going so fast, we're living with a hurried heart that because of that we miss that. And what I find so interesting is that we feel this temptation and this easy slide into hurry and yet Jesus was rarely in a hurry. If you uh, have a Bible reading plan for this year, if you read through the Bible this year, which is a great habit to begin the new year, on the back of your handout at the bottom, just a little side note, we've put together a, a link to help you have some reading plans for the year. It's prescottcornerstone.com slash reading hyphen plans. It's at the bottom, so you can check it out later. But if you read through the Bible this year or you read through the, the Gospels, one of the things you'll discover is that Jesus was rarely in a hurry. And if anybody had a reason to hurry... It's Jesus. I mean, he's got a limited amount of time, millions of people to help. He should be rushed. People to go, things to do, things to see. Let's get it done. But he's never in a hurry. In fact, he's on his way to go heal someone, kind of a big job. And he's in a crowd of people, and they're all kind of pressing in. I'm kind of imagining when I used to celebrate New Year's Eve in Las Vegas, growing up on the Strip, 500,000 people in a mile and a half. Everybody's touching you. And he's walking along, and he turns around to his disciples, and he said, somebody touched me. And like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. There's no bubbles available today. Everybody's touching you. He said, no, no, somebody touched me. And he turns, and there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She touched him. And he paused going to help somebody who was about to die, to look at her and notice her and heal her and pay attention to her. And one of the things I've learned from failure is that the way you spell love is A-T-T-E-N-T-I-O-N. Love is spelled attention. I say it from failure because when my wife gets frustrated with me, it's often because I'm not paying attention. We listen, honey, yeah, yeah, I heard you, I heard you. No, but you weren't actually listening. Scott, are you here right now? I know you're actually here, but are you really here? If you want to experience God in 2019, if you want to, I think I'm losing my mic there a little bit. Um, if you want to experience a new and a fresh life with God, you're going to have to pay attention to him. If you want to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength this year, you have to pay attention. And the people around you, the people that matter most to you, what they want is your attention. Last week, Pastor Josh shared about his sabbatical and what he said about his son. 
said, Dad, my favorite part of your sabbatical was just you being with me. You paying attention to me. We screw this up because we live at a hurried pace, which prevents us from paying attention. Second way we mess this up is that we seek to remain in control instead of embracing surrender and trust. For many of us, our desire is to remain in control. And because of that, we avoid embracing surrender and trust. In that passage, Matthew 11, Jesus continues, and in the New Century Version, this is how it's translated. Jesus says, accept my teachings and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirits and because you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your lives. In the day of Jesus, there were lots of different rabbis, lots of different teachers of which Jesus became a noted one. And when you began to follow a teacher, when you began to follow a rabbi, when you began to embrace and accept their teachings, and you began to learn from them and live following them, it was described in that day that you would accept their yoke. Now, they were farmers in an agrarian society, so they understood that a yoke was this wooden piece that attached two oxen together and enabled them to plow double what they would have plowed on their own. And so when you embraced a a teacher's teaching, you were embracing their yoke and enabling you to live and do more than you could in your own power and in your own strength. You were saying, hey, I'm going to submit to, I'm going to accept, I'm going to embrace their way of life and their teaching. And and along the way, somewhere, we, we got this idea that you could become a Christian or a follower of Jesus and embrace ideas about Jesus without embracing his lifestyle. You could make some mental agreements without it actually changing your life. And John Mark Comer so powerfully says, if we want to experience the life of Jesus, then we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want to become like Jesus, a Christian, a small version of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to live like he lived. And what that means is that you are no longer in control of your life. You are no longer in charge, and you are no longer living the life you would live on your own. Hurried, busy, noisy, and distracted, you are beginning to make an exchange. Following Jesus is the greatest exchange we'll ever make. Greater than returning a present that we didn't like or something that we didn't need for something else. When you begin to follow Jesus, you are accepting his yoke and exchanging your natural way of living for the way he would call you to. Interestingly enough, in the early days of the church, they didn't call the followers of Jesus Christians first. The first thing they called them was followers of the way. See, you couldn't just believe things about God and then live however you wanted. To follow Jesus, you literally went the way of Jesus. And going the way of Jesus meant that you eliminated ruthlessly hurry from your life. And you began to live a life that was present, paying attention. Pastor Josh, when he came back from sabbatical, met with the elders. And he didn't remember saying this until I told him. I said, hey, the most profound thing you've said since your sabbatical about what God did was this. This next slide I'm going to show you. And he goes, I said that. I said, yeah, you're really profound, dude. You, should, you, you need to say really good stuff. This is what he said. He said, Scott, there were things about God I could only discover in slowness and stillness. 
And if your desire this year, if one of your goals is to experience more of God, to grow in your relationship with him, then there is a piece of who God is that you will not discover as you hurry and hustle. There is a piece of who God is that you will not discover when you're living 100 miles an hour. There is a piece of God that you will not discover when you are distracted and hurried. You will only discover it when you learn to be quiet. When you learn to rest. When you ignore the temptation to grab your phone to numb out what you don't want to feel. When you learn that all that you're trying to hustle and hurry to achieve can't earn you what God wants to give you as a gift. And to be honest, on Wednesday night, about 10 o'clock when I was writing the sermon, this is when I got angry. Because this is when this sermon started moving from a message for all of you to a message for me. And I was not happy. Sometimes sermons are like small children or cats. They're just hard to corral and do what you want. And this sermon moved that direction. And I started to get mad at God. I'm like, this is not supposed to be like counseling for me. This is supposed to be a sermon for all the people. This is not supposed to be like therapy for me and hard. And I've never heard God speak to me audibly before. I've never heard a big booming voice from the sky or even just, but I'll get an impression from God sometimes. And here's the impression I got late Wednesday night. I wrote it down. I felt like God was saying, Scott, I have more to give you, but you keep trying to achieve it yourself and you won't get it that way. You cannot achieve the life I have for you. You can only receive it. And for a firstborn, type A, driven Enneagram 3, that is really, really hard to hear. And it was not what I wanted to hear. But God is calling you and me to leave behind the life of control and to exchange it for a life of surrender and trust. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. But the things that God has for us in this new year, they're not things we can achieve. They're only things we can receive. And so you can hustle harder. You can go faster. You can do more but you're still not going to get there. And here's the third thing. The third way we tend to screw this up is that we compare what God has given us with what God has given to others. We compare what God has given us with what God has given others. After I left where I was riding that night, I realized that I had promised my wife I would fill up our car with gas. And I didn't want to do that because it's 28 degrees outside. And I'm from the desert. I don't like the cold. And so I was like, hey, but I promised her she's going to be mad at me if I don't do this. And so I pulled in, pulled into the gas station, and I'm shivering outside, filling up a car with gas. And the gas pump was moving so slow. It was like it was slowing down in the cold, you know? And, and I'm sitting there, and these moments happen sometimes, and I just look down at this pump. And I just started thinking about what it is that my life runs on, what it is that our lives run on. What's the fuel? And for so many of us, what fuels our lives is comparison. It's comparison. And, and we have these amazing technologies. I mean, right now, you're, some of you are watching this at home in your pajamas, and you're watching church. Like, how crazy is that, you know? 
But some of the technologies that we have are practically good, but they're toxic for our souls. And the technologies that we have, they fuel comparison. And we screw this up because you and I know everything there is to know about our lives. And you know what we do? We compare it with the very, very little we know about other people. And what I've learned, and Craig Rochelle says this really well, is the fastest way to ruin something special is to compare it to something else. Some of you, right now, today, January 6th, 2019, you are living the answer to your prayers. You're living the answer to your prayers. The relationship you now have that you didn't have before, the place you've gotten to in that relationship that you never thought possible, the place that you live, the area that you live, the child that you have, the job that you have, the opportunities that are in front of you are literally answered prayers. And what you do is you take it and you compare it to the highlight reel of one or two moments of everybody else's lives. And it ruins that special thing that you have. And it's not just you. Before you begin shaming yourself that you're this terrible person, the heroes of the Bible had this same problem. The apostle Peter, who was in a moment the worst friend Jesus had. He's the best friend of Jesus. And in his moment of greatest need, he betrays him. And in John 21, Jesus and Peter had this amazing reconciliation. Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? He says, yes, I love you. They have this whole thing. He restores Peter. He gives Peter his calling to lead in the church in the future. And what does Peter do with this special thing God gives him? In John 21, we read this. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, which is John's humble way of describing himself in his book. He says to Jesus, when he saw John, Lord, what about this guy? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will for him to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I don't know a lot of things in life, but one thing I do know is that comparison is the way away from Jesus. Whatever he has for you in this year, the way away from it is comparison. And notice how I wrote that point, number three, if you have your hand out. Look at it. It says comparison. We compare what God has given to us with what God has given to others. Did you notice that? I didn't say that we compare what we have achieved with what other people have achieved. We compare the gift that God has given us with the gift that God has given someone else. You didn't earn what God put in your hands. And they didn't either. And when we compare what God has given us with what God has given them, that leads us away from God because it says, God, I don't trust you. God, I don't believe you have my best at heart. God, I don't believe that you actually have for me a life that is worth living. Comparison leads us away. And it leads us away from this 
this invitation that Jesus offers to us, where he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It leads us away from this life where he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This year, as we begin this new year, yes, set goals. Yes, make resolutions. Yes, dream dreams of what God might do. But along the way, remember, the the life we want, the life God wants to give us cannot be achieved. It can only be received. And over the next couple weeks, this is going to kind of be like a a movie trilogy, this three-week series. You've got to come back for the rest because I'm not resolving it. I'm not answering a lot of your questions. It's okay. You've got to come back. But we're going to talk about how we receive that and then live that. But before we do, I want to give you a little bit of a head start. And so I have a couple next steps for you on the back of your handout. And the first one is this. I want you to identify the arena of your life where you're trying to achieve what God wants you to receive. Where are you trying to hustle and achieve and hurry the gift that God wants to give you? Where is that place for you that that's a struggle? It's going to be unique for everybody. But where is that place where you're trying to still achieve what God wants you to receive? Number two, I want to invite you to begin your own quiet rebellion against hurriedness. Now, notice I said your own quiet rebellion. Do not post on Facebook, I'm done being hurried. That ruins the whole thing. But where you are, I want you to begin rebelling against that hurried spirit. Maybe that means... This week, you drive the speed limit everywhere you go. (laughs) Even when you're late. And even when you're not late. Because isn't that the challenge? There's a lot of us that hurry even when we're not in a hurry. Maybe you look at your calendar and you go, I don't have to actually do this all this week. I actually can't do this all this week. I'm going to move some of these things to next week. Maybe in reference to that Louis C.K. line, you take your phone and you put it in your back seat so you can't reach it. So when that feeling comes, you don't numb it out. But begin your own quiet rebellion against hurriedness. For me, that means my goal this week, and I didn't say this first service and I'm saying it now, so we're going to use this video online so I have accountability. I'm going to eat all of my meals this week in at least 10 minutes. Which you go, that isn't very long, Scott. Yeah, it is. I typically do about two and a half. So so that's how I'm going to rebel against hurriedness this week. And then number three, I want to challenge you to start each day this week in a posture or with a posture of receiving. And I want to explain that to you with a story and then an exercise. Many years ago in San Francisco, there was a doctor named Dr. Friedman. And he had a waiting room like a lot of waiting rooms, not well-decorated, pretty frustrating to be in. And he looked out one day and he said, this, this waiting room is tired. This waiting room needs some attention. Let's send the chairs out to be reupholstered. So they sent the chairs out and the upholstering company came back to them and said, hey, we need to talk to you about your chairs because we have never seen chairs like your chairs before. And he said, what? What do you mean? And they said, well, your chairs show us something we've never seen in all our years of upholstery. So typically, when you get a chair for reupholstering, the area that needs to be reupholstered is the back and the bottom of the back. Because most of us sit back in a chair like that, and that's where all the wear is. 
They said, your chairs are totally different. Your wear is not in the back and the bottom. It's in the front and on the hands. And they said, what kind of medicine do you practice? (laughs) And he said, I'm a cardiologist. What they discovered is that everyone sitting in his chairs were not sitting like this. They were sitting like this. Because when you're in a cardiologist's office, you've either had a heart attack or you're heading for a heart attack. You've been living at a pace where you're on the edge of your seat. And the people who were sitting in his chairs, they were the first ones up when her name got called. They were the first ones up when the door opened. And all of those chairs were literally falling apart because people were on the edge of their seat. That conversation changed the trajectory of Dr. Friedman's life. And if anybody has ever called you a type A person, or if you have ever called somebody a type A person, you have the upholstering company that Dr. Friedman picked to blame because Dr. Friedman began to research the kind of people in his office, and he's the person who came out with type A and type B people. Because he began to wonder, is it the type A person who ends up in my office with a heart condition? Or is it the heart condition that leads people to be type A people? And he wasn't sure. But all that he knew was that he wanted to help those people. And so this week, I want to invite you into an exercise with me. And I want you to do this every day this week to start your day. It's not long. Take you about five minutes. And we're going to do it right now. So I'm going to invite all of you to move to the front of your seat right now. Some of you are already there. You're ready to leave. You'll be gone soon enough. Don't don't worry. But I want you to move to the front of your seat. And I want you to bow your head, close your eyes. And I want you to think about all of that list that is your worry list. I want you to think about the things that kept you up last night. To think about the things that were weighing you down when you walked in this morning. I want you to think about the things that you try to tune out and numb out with grabbing your phone when you drive or keeping the noise way up. What are the things that cause you anxiety or still your peace? And it's at that place that we're going to pray. God, we thank you that you invite us to come to you wherever we are and with whatever we have. God, we're coming to you today weary and heavy laden. We're wearied by our own insufficiencies and inadequacies. We're weary and heavy laden because of the sinful, broken, destructive choices of other people that have made their impact in our lives. We're anxious about a future that we know we're not in control of. God, we're worried because we don't know what's going to happen next. God, we're afraid of not having enough. We are worried about so many things. And some of us, God, if we're honest, have a hard time believing that you actually can give us rest. 
we have a hard time believing there's any other way than this. But God, we so want to believe you. We want that rest, not just for our bodies, but for our souls. And we're on the edge of our seat, waiting for it. I'd like to invite everybody to sit all the way back in your chair. As far as you can go. And put your hands, palms up on your armrests or your legs. God, we pray that you would fill our hands with everything we need. You promise us in the scriptures that you will meet all of our needs and you will supply all of our needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So God, we are trusting you today to give us all we need for what lies ahead. We're asking you and we're seeking to receive instead of achieve. God, there's so many things that worry us and cause us anxiety. But God, none of those things are a surprise to you. And so we pray that you would fill our hands and our hearts with what we need. And we pray that you would lead us into that rest. We trust you. We want to follow you. We need you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And that's how I want you to begin every day this week. It's not going to fix all those things that we lean forward about. But shifting your perspective and your posture and your life from achieving to receiving changes everything. And I believe in this year to come, God has so much that he wants to give you but you won't get it by hurrying, hustling, and achieving. You'll only find it by receiving. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.